Well, if you've got your Bible, you can go to Matthew 20. Um, I'm not preaching this morning, but I do have the joy of introducing the one who is. Um, Stephen Gamble is, since 1998, uh, the pastor, one of the pastors of the Reformed Baptist Church of Nashville. And uh, he was raised just a few miles down the road in southern Indiana. And um, he was raised very nearby his dear wife, Kimberly, who's not able to join us today. Um, he had a background in music, and he joined the Army Band after high school in Fort Knox. When he left the military, he went on the road full-time. This was the 80s in a rock band as the drummer. And um, he was married to Kimberly at the time. And uh, under the, the, the life of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of playing drums on the road in a band, his life quickly spiraled, and um, he ended up in divorce. And his life, in his own words, was one of devastation. Uh, the Lord came in that season of Stephen's life in late 1990 and grabbed a hold of his heart and his life and transformed him and transformed his wife at the same time, or his, his ex-wife at that time, Kimberly, and they got remarried and have been married um, ever since, following both of their conversions and God's grace in their remarriage. After he went to school for liberal arts, um, he got a degree in computer science, but he began sensing a call to pastoral ministry, so he moved to New Jersey and studied there for a period of time, and then was called by, at that time, a small group of people in the Nashville area in 1998 to be the pastor, and he's been there ever since. So Stephen will be opening our series over the next six weeks where we're going to look at the parables of Jesus, the stories that Jesus told concerning salvation. And the one we're going to look at this morning is in Matthew chapter 20. And so I want to read for us Matthew 20 verses 1 through 16, and then Stephen's going to come and preach this text for us. Matthew 20 verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those who were hired first came, they thought they'd receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge? my generosity. So the last will be first and the first last. 
joyful husband of Kimberly. We just had our 33rd anniversary after the story um, that you just heard. We have two children, Hannah, who is 21, who is our beloved prodigal presently, and our Josh, who is 17, who is still at home with us. As Mark said, I have been uh, was the original church planning pastor of Reformed Baptist Church of Nashville. Uh, 22 years ago, we just had our 22nd anniversary on August 2nd from our original start date. And perhaps you can just hear from what little of that story, which as Mark is telling it, I'm like, man, that guy, who who is that guy? I'm like, oh yeah, that's me. I I hope you can hear from that story like the absurdity of me doing this this morning in one sense. Owensboro is an interesting place for me because it was in Owensboro that I had at the Brass A Saloon, some of you remember, that I had my audition for a band called Nix, which played there, that I got that audition. So I got hired here in Owensboro by a band that I, I won't blame the band, but through that band would destroy my life. My marriage, I mean, it was, it was already, it was the Titanic already sinking. This just blew a couple more holes in it. Let's put it that way. It was in Owensboro that I got hired by that band, would come back and play the Brassé Saloon. And it was in Owensboro a couple of years, maybe a, less than a year after my conversion, that I came to visit Heritage for the first time. Uh, we were part of Reformed Baptist Church of Louisville and came over to here. Um, I'm trying to think if it was a Shield Blaze that was here, if I remember correctly, and uh, came at the building over here. And I walk in, and I'm a nice cleaned up shirt and tie suit. Uh, um, what do you call those? Briefcase. Reformed Baptist at the time came walking in. The new guy, I'm the new kid on the block, radically converted from cut hair, earrings out, shirt and tie, briefcase, and I came walking in, and there at Heritage Baptist Church was my best friend from the band named Cliff. And he and I were tight on the road, tight in ways that you don't want to know about. And there is Cliff. And I'm excited. I hadn't, I hadn't talked to Cliff since the band broke up. And so I'm excited. And I go to talk to Cliff. And he looks me up and down. And I'm pretty sure by the end or before the sermon had even ended, he was going out the side door to avoid me. Because what I was in our tightness together and what the Lord had just begun to make me into were not compatible. And so Owensboro has a special place for me. It has a special place for me in my heart because of many of the relationships as I look on faces out here and I know a few of you. I wish, I wish, here's what I honestly wish. I could hit a pause button right now. Y'all would freeze. Like I had the mutant power of freezing you. 
And then I'd come and sit in the seat in front of you, mask or no mask, whatever we needed to do. And I would love to hear your story. I'm a story guy. I love to hear stories. We can't do it now. We can't do it this morning. But I'm looking forward to many of you in eternity sitting with a cup of coffee or tea or whatever we might be drinking there and hearing your story and hearing what the Lord has done. I've come to love stories. I've come to love communities so deeply. I've come to love and I've loved the local church for a long time, but I've come to love the kingdom of God even more greatly. Because I realize that our church, Reformed Baptist Church of Nashville, is a temporary entity. I mean, there's just not a good track record for local churches over history. They seem to be used by the Lord as temporary institutions. And when you try to hold on to the institution without the work of the Holy Spirit, the institution becomes hollow and becomes like so many buildings, just hollow and empty of life. But that is never true of the kingdom of God. And what we're doing at RBC Nashville, what you're doing here at Heritage, you realize you're investing in more than what's happening within this building and even within this community. We are building into something that is enduring and lasting and that Jesus himself has promised will endure to eternity. And so this whole idea of the kingdom of God is just where we are in Matthew 20 here. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Again, it's profoundly absurd to me that I would stand before you this morning. And that's not a humble boast or, you know, kind of a false humility. I mean that. I feel that this morning. And to stand here with the word of God to open it before you is a wonderful task. Thank you for trusting me. Thank you, pastors, for inviting me. So our brother read in, in Matthew chapter 20, and, and I just finished preaching. I started preaching through Matthew in December of 2016 and just finished up a few months ago and just came to love Matthew. But one of the major themes that if you've read the book of Matthew long at all is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Like this is, this is a big deal. The kingdom of God has come through Jesus Christ who is the king. And this kingdom is a kingdom separate from and subversive to every other human institution and nation and kingdom, including America. And what we're doing is something, part of a bigger story, a part of a bigger kingdom. And while it's not strictly against the nations, the kingdom is for the nations in one sense. In one sense, all of the other nations will fall, including America. But the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is what will endure forever because we have a king who is resurrected from the dead and his promise to raise us from the dead together with him when he returns in great glory and judgment with his angels and the power of his Father. And so that's what this is about in Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like. Now this is a parable that is only recorded by Matthew. It's a kingdom parable. This is sometimes referred to as the parable of the workers, which I believe shifts the spotlight off the primary focus of the parable itself, which is not the workers, but the master. 
the character of the master. If you notice up on my first slide, sometimes it's called the parable of the workers, but I I believe it's the parable actually of the generous master. I was watching a movie just the other day that a friend had lent to me about some of the coal mine disputes and labor laws, disputes in, I can't remember where where it takes place now, maybe West Virginia. but there, there's a scene with a young preacher who's preaching through this parable. And I thought, well, that's ironic. I'm going to be preaching that this Sunday. But he was using it to talk about the issue of labor laws and fair pay and those kind of things. And, and this parable has been, been used for lots of different things, including socialism. Everybody gets equal pay, even though they do different amounts of work. And, and on and on and on. And that's why I just don't think it's about the laborers. It's about the master, as I hope we'll see. Now, as a matter of fact, previously in chapter 9, there's a context of the danger of riches. And there's even the promise that those who leave the things in this life will receive a hundredfold both in this life and the life to come. The promise of a hundredfold plus everlasting life. But the larger context here in Matthew 20 begins actually back in chapter 18, which begins with the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest? One of the things this parable tells us is none of the workers are the greatest. It's the master who is greatest because of his generosity, because of his love, and because of his mercy and grace to those who need a good work to do. And so the larger context, who is the greatest? The greatest of you will be those who are as little children. But the greatness is not in the disciple, ultimately. The greatness is in the person of the master, Jesus Christ. Now, this is bookended by the chiasm, what's known as a chiasm, a turnaround Of the first and the last, the last will be first, the first will be last. It begins back in chapter 19, verse 30, and then we come to it again here in chapter 20, verse 16. So this is part of a section that is telling a larger story. Now, there are varying degrees of interpretive resolutions, just so you know. I've done the commentary reading, so you don't have to. I won't go through all of the options, all of the issues. But there's a number of different approaches to this parable. And if you think of a dial of, of, uh, let's call it allegorical application. So if you turn the dial all the way to one, you might look at this parable as there's like one main parallel and this has one main point. Okay, so that's one end of the interpretation, which might be something like, you know, fairness or equity or work or the, 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 uh, character of the, of the master, something like that. On the other end of the spectrum of our um, allegory interpretation dial is that everything has a meaning in this parable. From the time that they are called to the last hour, to who the workers are, to how it is that they're engaged by way of questions, to the degree of the master, to the payment equals judgment day. So you have a very high resolution, like everything has meaning in it. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have a very low resolution that says there's one main point to that. So just know that if we come away from this this morning and you're like, yeah, I'm not sure I exactly agree. Well, you're not the only one that, agree, that disagrees with me. So that's okay. I'm not, my feelings aren't hurt. I'm going to give you the best I have, the best I understand 
of this parable, but it is difficulty. So you'll see there from one-to-one correlation to every detail to one major correlation within the parable. Just so you know, there are varying degrees of application and approaches to this parable. But without any further ado, let's look at verse 1, what I'm calling the setup. As I've already said, this is a kingdom parable. It's about the kingdom of heaven. This is telling us something about the kingdom of heaven is like, and notice here, the like is not, the kingdom of heaven is like workers. That's the first cue to me that this isn't about the workers. Or like, the kingdom of heaven is like work that we do. Or the kingdom of heaven is like the ways we get paid or rewarded. No, the kingdom of heaven is like, and the central figure is the master of the house. The spotlight here is kingdom of heaven is like the master of the house. And now we ask the question, what master of the house? Tell us about the master of the house. But but my, my suggestion is that we should come away seeing the character of the master of the house. It's application to evangelism. It's application to missions. It's application to salvation. It's application to the kingdom of God and to we who are, my favorite term for local churches is we are outposts of the kingdom. We are not the kingdom itself. We're an outpost of the kingdom and we're representatives, we're embassy centers of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Pretty straightforward here. He goes out to hire those to come work for him. He is a master of a house. I'm going to do something right here. It's going to distract me for just a minute because I I need to do it to make sure I see everything that I need to see. And that's not going to do it. Let me try it right here. Okay, that's okay. I'll do without it. So the master of a house. So he goes out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And what we're going to find is he does this in various stages. He goes out early. He obviously has vineyards. He has fields. He's got work that he wants done. And then in verse 2, we see an agreement with the workers. Sorry, my iPad is messing up here. Let me fix it quickly. Thank you. Technology is wonderful. It is also terrible. And here's what I'm calling in verse 2, the agreement workers. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day. So here's what happens. He goes out. He goes to get some workers. These are day workers. These are day laborers, by the way, getting the equivalent to us of a dollar a day. These are those who didn't have fields. They were not slaves. They were not somebody who had their own employment. Rather, they were those who were literally dependent on the generosity of someone who needed help to come every day and get them. And, 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 and when we think of the, the prayer of Jesus, give us this day our daily bread, that would have been prayed for people literally standing, waiting for masters of the house to come by to hire them. Like they have left their family at home. And I remember the first time I ever saw this was in the Philippines, where literally if a man could not sell the peanuts that he had raised a little bit of capital before 
to go out and sell on the street. If somebody stole his peanuts, if somebody stole his money, he literally would walk back into the door with nothing in hand, his starving children and wife there, and say, we don't have anything. And these day laborers are literally not living week to week, but day to day. So he comes in, he arranges with them, I will give you a denarius for a day work, for this day. And they said, yes, we agree. And by the way, that in and of itself, in biblical terms, was a generous wage for what they needed, what they would need to provide food for their family. It doesn't provide long-term stability, but it does provide well for the family for that day. So he sends them into his vineyard. And then we see what I'm calling subsequent hires, verse 3 through 5. And going out about the third hour, so he's already sent them, he comes again about the third hour, about 9 o'clock, 6 o'clock and 9 o'clock now, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So the first crew has agreed. There's been, a, there's been an agreement, a contractual verbal agreement. I'll give you a denarius. These might have been some of the workers that heard him say that. And then he simply says to these workers, go, and I'll, I'll give you what is right. So... Well, we're three hours in to a work day, so probably it's going to be less than a denarius, but not a lot less than to a denarius. So it's a hire, but it's not agreed hired. It's not been verbally affirmed what they're going to get paid. And they're, well, going to give them a denarius? Let's go. Let's go work for him. So you go into the vineyard and whatever's right. So they went. They agreed with it probably grateful that they got anything. They're just grateful they got work. And then going out again about the sixth hour, so now we're talking about noon and the ninth hour, about three o'clock in the afternoon-ish. He did the same. He goes out, go work, I'll give you what is fair. And you can see every one of them like calculating like, okay, I'm half a day through, so I'll get a half a denarius, but it's half a day. I got to get something to get my family. I got to get something to pay the bill. I got to do something. So they're agreeing. But after the first one who agreed for a denarius, the rest of them are totally dependent on the master. So he did the same. And then what I'm calling verses six and seven, the final bunch. So he's gone out six ish, nine, 12, three. And about the 11th hour of a 12 hour workday. So they're going to knock off in an hour. About the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, it's an interesting question. And honestly, I don't know what to do with it. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of ways to approach it, but it's just, it's kind of, it makes me chuckle. Why do you stand here idle all day? Well, you haven't hired us, dude. <laughs> We've been here. Like you keep walking past us back and forth and taking all of everybody. Else. Why do you stand here? And it's almost like a rebuke. And so there's different interpretations. Like, like he, they, like, almost like it was a general call, and like they were just standing there, well, we're going to wait for something better. But it doesn't seem to be the case. So I'm not quite sure, honestly, what to do with it, but there seems to be a bit of rebuke built into this. Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, 
because no one's hired us. Like we're here, ready to work, ready to go. Bottom line is no one's hired us. We're an hour before sundown. We're hoping for anything, even a pittance, anything. Bottom line is no one's hired us. But maybe there's something more to this than just a, a, a question that is a little bit uh, perplexing. It's actually an affirmation that there, there's idleness in life until the master comes along to call to work. Uh, for those of you who slightly grunted, I'll leave that to you to apply on your own. You got that? point, I'm going to leave you to go with that. Maybe there's, there's something more to this here. Not a rebuke, but an affirmation that really, I'll go ahead and say it, life is idle till you're called by the master. So he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. There was a little dog here. My little dog, Bailey, somehow got a hair on my iPad and it's been bugging me for 10 minutes. So that's why I blew it off. That was not just a random blow. So he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And so then verse eight and nine, payment begins. Somebody blows a whistle, somebody yells out, somebody whistles, somebody does something. It's gotten dark. They're finished their work in the vineyard. And you wouldn't withhold, and you'll remember some places in the New Testament, withholding the wages of the worker was injustice and inequity. These people are literally living day by day. They need their pay today. You don't, there's not a weekly paycheck. There's not a biweekly. There's not a monthly. There's no retirement plan. It is, I need hand, money in hand today. So at sundown, I can go buy some food to feed my family. That's how poor, poor we're dealing with here. So the payment begins, verses 8 and 9. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, this, but this is a setup, y'all. The master could have done something. He could have done this a totally different way that would have caused no friction and no problem whatsoever. But he does the opposite. He's in a sense poking these guys in the eye to make the parable make sense. Call the laborers and pay them their wages, he says to his foreman, beginning with the last up to the first. All you had to do is start with the first and there'd be no problems whatsoever. First guys come along, denarius, they go their way. Next group, here's a denarius. Oh, wow, generosity. They go their way. Third wave gets their denarius. The, 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 the earliest workers are gone off the scene. No problem. But he says, I want you to intentionally turn this thing around because I want to I make a point about my character. So do that. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. So they're all lined up according to their shifts, right? And there's that first group has, has come up and they're like, man, 
we were here like an hour. What are we going to get? Can you make a denarius, you know, a part of a denarius? Is that like one one-hundredth of a cent? I mean, what are we even going to get? I mean, we even, we barely broke sweat. These other guys are sweating. They've been in the heat of the day. They've been out there. The guys that just walk up, it's like, where's the tools? About the time they get their orientation of what to do, it's knockoff time. Oh, oh, okay, okay. There's the foreman. Step up. Here we go. Keep accounting. Okay. How long have you been here? Left hour? Okay. There's the denarius. What? Then the next guy, the denarius. What? Now you can see the guys further back. It's like, they got a denarius? Guys all the way in the back are like, what? A denarius? Then they start thinking, wait a second. If they're getting a denarius and they were only here for an hour, I've been here 12 hours. And now they're counting it up in their heads, you know, and I can do this and I can think about that and maybe I can finally get that Xbox I wanted or not really. But that would be the equivalent of 12 days wages. I mean, talking about a relief. That's no joke. That's almost two weeks pay. Well, yeah, it is two weeks pay. Right? Sabbath day, six days of work. Double that. That's 12 hours. It's two weeks of pay. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. And now we find in verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12, the agreeers, that was that first group, grumble. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Can you imagine standing in line, standing in line? Now, for dramatic effect, they don't actually, because it would kind of be a spoiler, wouldn't it? These guys got a denarius. These guys got a denarius. You know, by the time you got to the end in real life, you would know what was coming your way. So for dramatic effect, this is called a a narratival compression. They give you the first group, and then when the last group comes, it's like they're ignorant of what happened in between. That's just the way sometimes stories just work that way. In real life, they wouldn't have been as surprised. But they finally get there, and so now it's like fast speed. You know, and and you missed everything in between. And now they're there, and they're like, what are we going to get? So when those hired came first, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And it went from now what was promised them and what was fair to them was not satisfying to them. So they received a denarius, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. This could be simply, well, it's not simply because we know the master responds. They actually apparently go to him. What up? What is this? This is not fair, y'all. Sir? This isn't, this isn't right. This isn't just. This isn't equitable. So in receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last workers 
worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And all things being equal, which they're not, they've got a point. So this isn't about socialism. This isn't about equity. This isn't about what labor is worthy of his wages or else something's going on here. Very different than what I think the main point is. But we've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. I mean, they have felt the oppression. They have gone through the difficulties. This last wave literally came in, found their tools, barely, if at all, broke a sweat when the sun is going down and get paid the same. And these guys say, this is not fair. You've made us equal. And here is, I believe, the point of the parable. The landowner's reply is this, verses 10 through 12. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Still a friend. Doesn't get angry. He says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. And this is why. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? The bottom line is yes. Contractual verbal agreement, that's what I agreed to. So what is it about the master's character that didn't diminish the value of the denarius as each of the groups came in for less work? And this is not strictly, by, by the way, one, one commentator, I think it was R.T. France, said, if, if, if uh, Jesus is teaching us economic, economic principles, then he is failing miserably. And, I, and I, I think he's right that this wasn't intended to be an economic principle by which to run cultures and societies. It's just not the point of it at all. As a matter of fact, he often does stuff like this to make things that are absurd to, to make a major point. And here comes the point. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? What kind of master do we serve? He says, take what belongs to you and go. Stop complaining. I gave you what we agreed on. It is fair that I give you what you agreed on. I choose. I choose. It's the master's house. It's the master's field. It's the master's choice to bring in and invite workers. He said, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. And here's why. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? So the master of the house over the kingdom of God is the one who is minimally fair and just and right. But he's more than fair and just and right. 
He not only owns vineyard fields, this master of the kingdom owns all things. We read in Revelation about him creating all things and by him they are made and sustained by his power. Isn't that absurd? Am I not allowed? Am I not allowed? Am I not allowed? Says the master of the house. To do what I choose with what belongs to me. Here you are coming impinging on what I ought and ought not to do. I did no injustice. No inequity. I never treated any of my workers unjustly or unfairly. But I'm not just a God of justice and fairness he is teaching us. He is a God of generosity. Do you, here's the issue. It is not inequity that the grumblers are complaining about, but actually the generosity of God. The generosity of the field steward, master of the house. Then he concludes and bookends this section of Matthew by saying, So, in the kingdom of heaven, the last will be first and the first last. Why? Because he is generous. Because he's generous. So whatever our understanding of that phrase, the last will be first and the first will be last is, it's got to be understood in the context of the generosity of God. So what do we do with this parable? I've tried to explain it the best my understanding. Let's look at some applications and just quite honestly some difficulties of interpretation. And here's where the higher resolution perspective of, of how parables work uh, becomes complicated. Because here's, here's, for instance, some positions. Uh, they say that, that Jesus is teaching about the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles, how the Jews came in early under the old covenant, and now the gospel is going to go out, and as it goes out, it's going to the nations, and the Jews shouldn't be jealous of the Gentiles who get in kind of at the last hour. <sighs> I'm not convinced that's what this is about. But that's, that's a significant major interpretation. Some, someone sometimes applies this as saying the older and younger believers. Like, I was, I was saved when I was four years old. I've been serving God all my life. And I'm going to get the, re- the same reward as the thief on the cross. You know, something like that. It's been interpreted that way. That God's, what do, God does, you know, whether it's the first hour or the last hour, this, that, that this is explicitly a parable of older, younger believers. And even, you know, the tendency of older believers to complain of God's grace against younger believers. I, I, I just don't, I don't buy that either. Or someone who serves very attached to that is longer and short, shorter service. Or having to do with merit and trust in how much work we do. So those are some of the difficulties of the who. Like if you start digging down into who are the workers, that those are some of the problems you run into. 
And one of the ways I like to uh, deal with problems is to avoid them. So, <clears throat> doesn't always work, by the way. But then there's the what. What, what are these rewards? Are these temporal rewards of life in this world and what you get and stuff? Is this eternal rewards? Is this indeed a, a, a judgment day socialism that says when you get in, everybody gets one denarius, one denarius, one denarius, one denarius? I can't buy that because of what the Bible says about the rewards according to our works. And I don't believe that our merit is by our works, but I think it's pretty clear the New Testament speaks of reward according. We will each one be judged according to the works and then rewarded. Wood, hay, and stubble, gold, precious stones, and silver. It's not a prosperity gospel, but it is certainly reward according to the things that are done in the body. And I just don't know how we can get away with that other than coming to a kind of a socialist idea of the judgment day. One denarius, one denarius, one denarius. I mean, I certainly hope Corey Ten Boom in some way gets something better than me in the eternal state. I certainly hope Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, Erickson Tata gets something more than Stephen Gamble gets. What that is, the nature of that, whatever, I don't know. But I certainly hope there's something more for them by the way they have glorified God in the midst of their suffering and how God has used them in humility. So I don't think that that's what this is talking about. You get into heaven, everybody gets the same thing. Because here's the misuse of it. Well, if I just wait till like the last hour of my day and then I repent and believe, I'm going to get the same thing as Brother Bob over here gets. Been a Christian all of his life, spoiled all his fun, didn't have good time with the girls, didn't have all these things, couldn't listen to Led Zeppelin, couldn't do all these things. Me, I'm going to wait when I see the car coming and say, help me, Jesus. And I get the same thing as Bob does. That's a terrible misuse of this text. Has nothing to do with that. To say that Varying degrees of service equals equal outcome in Judgment Day. I don't think it's good economical principles. I don't think it's a good New Testament biblical salvation principle. Now, I've got some theories of what that might be and look like, theories I won't go in this context. I mean, we get everything. We get the inheritance of the firstborn. We are co-heirs with Christ, but in some way and some nature. I believe the New Testament speaks something of motivations, of desires, of doing those things that we might be rewarded according to the things we have done based on his merit alone, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. But that judgment day has something to do before the Lord Jesus Christ standing before him and bringing what we have done in the body to him. And we haven't all done the same thing. So I think that, that seeing this as judgment day equity in that sense, it's not only not New Testament, I think it could be terribly misused. When is the reward here? I don't even think that's the point. 
the payment of the workers. That's not the point, I don't think. The coming day of judgment? Once you dial the resolution down to what is this teaching about the kingdom of heaven in the context of who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven and what is the nature of the kingdom of heaven, it moves from being a parable of eschatology of equal payment on the day of judgments to the, the grandeur of the majesty of a gracious and generous God. That's what I see in this parable. Because the misuse of this, again, is a delay of even responding to the call. Some of you have heard the gospel call over and over and over again. The fact that any of us got it the first time is um, that any of us get a single opportunity to hear Christ and him crucified, preached of the saving grace of one single time is immeasurable blessings and generosity of God. And God is like the master of the house who comes by and invites and says, Hey, come on, work in my field. Come on. The world is my field. I'll make you fishers of men. We need laborers for the harvest. We need people using their gifts. I intend to use you for the expansion of my kingdom. Come, come on. Let's get to work. You get that call once, it's amazing. And we deserve everlasting punishment for rejecting it. We deserve to be left isolated and desolate without food, without pay, idle, and despairing. But the master is so gracious and his harvest and his vineyard so crucial to what he is intending to do to magnify his name, he has a second drive-by. Come on! Jump on the truck, go with him. Nothing but grace. Undeserved merit and favor. Generosity beyond comprehension. And some of you have gotten in that truck before. And you heard. First time, second time. Then he comes back a third time. And a fourth time. And each time he keeps coming around. And some of you have stood idle all day long. As God has said, I am generous. I am loving. I am merciful. I am gracious. I forgive sins. I will give you the whole earth as an inheritance. I will show you true truth and beauty and goodness. And what it means to live good community, true human lives for the purpose for which I have created you. And you can't say. I'm idle because nobody's called me. And you will be without excuse on the judgment day because you've received gracious calls from Jesus to get in the truck and get to work. And some of you have year after year after year after year proportionally in your life heard the gracious call of the gospel to get to work in the fields. In the fields of Owensboro. In the fields of Nashville. 
in the fields of Syria, in the fields of Colombia, in the fields of the Ukraine, in the fields of wherever you are, wherever you go. There's work to be done in the Lord's field. And everybody he calls in grace to the gospel, he calls to work in the field. Some of you are young, some of you are old. Some of you have heard the gospel many, 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 many times. Some of you have heard it a few times. You're hearing it again this morning because Jesus is doing a drive-by going, come on. Come on, get in the truck. I've got a purpose. I've got meaning for you. I've got a work for you to do for my glory, for my name's sake. And you need to know I am generous. I'm generous in my call. I'm generous in my reward. And I will never deal with you with inequity or injustice. So in application, the master is generous. In his call, his repeated and late call for us all is to come and do business till he comes. In his reward, no one who responds receives what is unjust. And what he calls us to do in the field and at what hour is his right to do with his own things, what he wishes, both work and reward, is his to assign. It is ours to receive. It is his vineyard. It is his kingdom into which we are called to work. Therefore, let us respond in faith. Let us respond in submission. Let us respond in obedience. In faith, obedience, and submission, all because of love for the generosity of the master who has sent his own son into the world to die for our sins, to reconcile us to God and to give us a work to do until he comes. Let's pray, please. So Lord, we ask your blessing on the word of God. I pray if there's anything I've misinterpreted, mishandled, misunderstood and misproclaimed that you would please Cleanse it from the hearts and minds of your people. But Lord, may we come away with your generosity magnified. For thus, those of us who have been called and yet have been idle, Lord, may we be motivated to work in your fields. For those who've been called and not responded, we pray, Lord, today would be the day that they jump into the truck get into the field to take up the plow and never look back. Thank you for your word. The entrance of it brings light. We thank you, generous God, in Christ's name. Amen.